On the evening of November 9, 1938, violence broke out across Germany. For two days, over 7,000 Jewish businesses were trashed and looted and dozens of Jewish people were killed. Shattered glass from store windows littered the streets. Synagogues were torched by angry crowds, while German fire brigades stood idle. It became known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. From his simple weatherboard terrace house in the suburb of Footscray in Melbourne, Uncle William Cooper would have read about these events. But newspaper articles about the terrible treatment of Jewish people by the German Reich didn't just arouse his sympathies. For William Cooper and his fellow campaigners, something more had to be done. It was a call to action. Welcome to Dead and Buried Podcast, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Cotton. This episode, we look at Melbourne people going on strike and sticking it to the man. Things could get pretty wild out there on Melbourne streets. And we talk to journalist and broadcaster Jeff Sparrow about the 1923 police strike, a protest which virtually shut down the centre of Melbourne for three days. We'll also hear about the mandatory product labelling. Oh, you mean like made in China tags? Yeah, well, you'll see. It's something very similar. And we'll talk about how this was basically the racist Australian government giving the middle finger to Chinese factory workers because they'd won an industrial dispute over them. Our first story, however, is set in the Melbourne western suburb of Footscray. Traditionally, it's been home to working class and migrant families, although that's starting to change. Yeah, it is starting to change. I know a lot of people are moving out Footscray way. Yeah, I know. Uh, but you get a lot of Footscray diehards. So I've got a friend, she's been in Footscray for a couple of years now, but she showed me her tattoo the other week and it's on her foot and it just says Scray. So, yeah, you get the joke, right? Yeah. It's a pun. Foot, yeah. Footscray. Totally yeah. get it. And I asked her, I said, oh, you know, what are you going to do if you move? <laughs> She's like, I'll just never leave. (laughs) Anyway, so what a lot of people don't know is that in the 1930s to 40s, Footscray was also home to one of the most important protest organisations in Victoria and Australia, the Australian Aboriginals League, led by Uncle William Cooper. We spoke to one of his descendants about his story and the League's surprising connections to the plight of Jewish people in Nazi Germany. Kimberly Moulton. <laughs> so um, we're actually laughing here because Kim's my housemate and we were sitting around our kitchen and I'm pretty sure we were talking in our pyjamas. But as you'll see, she's more than qualified to talk on this subject. Here's our second attempt at a more serious introduction. My name's Kimberly Moulton. I'm a Yorta Yorta woman and my great-great-uncle is William Cooper I'm also Senior Curator for Southeastern Aboriginal Collections at Melbourne Museum. I think um, Uncle William Cooper really challenged the status quo of Australian life and the unjust treatment of Aboriginal people, not only in Victoria but nationally. William was born into the frontier of change for his people. 
He witnessed both the strength and cultural connections of the Yorta Yorta people and the attempted dispossession and destruction of our culture and country by invading English and European settlers. So William Cooper was born on the 18th of December in 1861 up on his Yorta Yorta Waka, which means country, Yorta Yorta country. His mother, Kitty Lewis, was a strong Yorta Yorta woman who had been born in a time prior to invasion of her country. William was the fifth of eight children she gave birth to on the banks of the Dungala Murray River. William Cooper and his family spent time on Aboriginal missions, which were set up by the state governments of Victoria, New South Wales and elsewhere in colonial Australia, basically as a way to concentrate and control Aboriginal peoples. Concentrate and control? That sounds so wrong. Yeah, and it was part of the official rhetoric used by the government at the time the compulsory Aboriginal mission system was established in 1869. Isn't it interesting that they used that word when later the same word would appear again in Nazi-run concentration camps? And I'm making this connection for a reason. Yeah, we're not just doing it for impact because much of this racist and anti-Jewish ideology had its origins in the eugenics movement, which sought to preserve so-called positive genetic traits and eliminate others. But classifying and ranking people based on pseudo-scientific racial categories, this was nothing new. It harked back to earlier movements like social Darwinism, which heavily influenced Australian colonial government thinking. And as Kimberley explains, in Victoria, New South Wales and elsewhere, government boards were set up to try and dictate the lives of Aboriginal residents living on missions. This included attempts to assimilate Aboriginal people into European ways of living, based on social Darwinist theories that they were genetically inferior and doomed to die out. Yeah, it's complex though, because missions and stations were also places where a sense of shared community developed for many Aboriginal people. Let's return to Kim to hear about the experience of William Cooper and his family. Uh, Kitty and William and his siblings were picked up um, in an old buggy from their bush humpies by missionaries Daniel and Janet Matthews. And they were taken to a station called Maloga and that had been established on the banks of the Dungala on the Murray River near Achuka. Maloga was both a place of refuge and oppression for Yorta Yorta people. Um, it provided distance from the violence of the settling pastoralists, yet had a vision to encourage assimilation and Christianity and really to disconnect Yorta Yorta people from their cultural ways of being. At Maloga, however, there was a lot of opportunity for Uncle William to learn and to articulate his, his thoughts through writing. And missionary and station manager Daniel Matthews, he's actually recorded in about 1874 stating that young Billy Cooper shows great aptitude for learning. From 1886, people moved from Maloga to the mission Kamragunja. And Kamragunja in Yorta Yorta means our home. So Kamra, as it's affectionately known, was a thriving mission. And although it was built upon... Uh, the assignment of oppression and segregation. In, a, in the first two decades um, of the mission, families had their own blocks, harvesting fruit and vegetables, raising cattle and fishing from the healthy river, and they were really just creating the best life they could. Um, family and community were everything on the mission, and it was part of life at Kumra. 
and also part of life at Kamra included the school and education. And that education came from Uncle William's brother-in-law, Thomas Shadrach James, who is my great-great-grandfather. There were lots of social events as well at Kamra, including picnic days, races and musicals. And there was a lot of learning and there was a lot of discussion that happened around the rights of our people. Frustrated, William Cooper left Kummeragunja after the Aboriginal Protection Board decided in 1919 that Aboriginal people wouldn't be allowed to farm on Aboriginal missions. To support himself and his family, William Cooper worked most of his life around New South Wales and country Victoria as a shearer and an agricultural labourer. Although at one point he owned a fish store in the town of Mellowa. Well, we've got a photo of William Cooper here with us. And it's funny, though, because even though he obviously lived a life full of hard labour, his portrait doesn't really suggest that. He's really suave looking. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a sign of the times. Uh, If you were going to get your photo taken, you're going to pretty much dress in your best clothing. Yeah, well, he does a really good job of it. Oh, yeah, he looks very handsome. Yeah. We asked Kim if she could tell us a bit more about this iconic portrait shot which you can see on our website. Uncle William, like a lot of, you know, the old fellas and, you know, the aunties and uncles and everyone of that day, they they took such pride in their appearance and what they wore and, um, yeah, you can just see such strength in Uncle William as well, both in, you know, the way he presents himself but in his stance and that pride of who he is and his people not to mention a very fantastic, thick moustache. After many years of hard work, Uncle William returned to Kamragunja around the 1930s. In his 70s, Uncle William, under the government policy at the time, was not eligible to receive the old age pension on the mission, so he moved himself and his family to Coolan country, to Melbourne in 1933. Many Aboriginal people had moved to Melbourne around this time and a lot of communities uh, were forming in the West and in Fitzroy and Northcote areas. Um, People were fleeing, you know, the reserves because of the, the horrible and harsh treatment. Moving away from the mission gave Uncle William the freedom of voice to fight for Aboriginal equality with mainstream Australia and writing letters using the platform and immediacy of the print media, which really became an ally to his cause. It had its foundations built upon calling for the rights of the descendants of the original people. And, you know, their policies were built on the pride of being black and equality for all. It was a hard time to survive back then and the AAL meetings took place in Uncle William's modest house in the West. Annie Marge Tucker also was a member of the AAL and recalled that the house had neither gas or electricity and they sat around the fire, the candles flickering on the mantelpiece. William Cooper and the Australian Aborigines League, the AAL, led smart and progressive campaigns. For example, they held the first National Day of Mourning, a forerunner to the now nationally significant Invasion Day movement. The protests, back then and now, carried the same core message. They recognised that the settlement of Australia by the British was actually an invasion of Aboriginal communities, lands and culture. Here's Kimberley. On the 150th anniversary of colonisation in Australia, Uncle William and the AAL actually joined forces with the Aborigines Progressive Association 
So this protest was to actually serve as a national day of mourning and objection to the the celebrations that were happening um, happening rather at the time of this 150th anniversary. This was a monumental moment in um, Australian history and Aboriginal history in terms of Aboriginal protest and fighting for our rights. The 1938 anniversary celebrated the dawn of British immigration to Australia, yet at the same time, immigration of non-whites to Australia, including Jewish people, was heavily restricted. In that year, Australia attended the Evian Conference in France, which brought global leaders together to discuss concerns about the rising numbers of Jewish and other persecuted people fleeing Germany. The 1930s was a period of economic depression and there were strong arguments on both sides regarding Australia's responsibility. The Australian representative, Thomas Walter White, spoke against accepting increasing numbers of Jewish refugees. Yeah, and he even went so far as to say, we have no real racial problem and we are not desirous of importing one. I bet this was surprising news to Aboriginal people and other immigrants. Yeah. This news of the persecution by the Nazis struck a chord with members of the Aboriginal community living in Footscray. Thousands of miles away, he was reading about the treatment of the Jewish people. And so Uncle William Cooper led a deputation with the AAL to the city um, from Footscray in the west to the German consulate in Melbourne. And this was in protest um, and to support the Jewish people. Uncle William was 77 at the time. When the members of the AAL and Uncle William got to the German consulate, they were refused admission and they left the letter uh, with the consulate with their resolution. So the letter that was delivered to the German consulate, which um, was refused, that unfortunately that's lost um, and we don't, we don't know where it is or if it is still out there. I kind of hope it is and we'll find it one day. In Australia, the campaign started by William Cooper and the Australian Aborigines League is the only known privately organised protest about the treatment of Jewish people by the Reich. It was a bold move by William Cooper and his fellow campaigners to stand up for the civil rights of others because in the 1930s, Aboriginal people themselves were not even counted as Australian citizens and were excluded from many basic rights and entitlements. As we know, moves by the Australian government to aid Jewish people in Europe would come far too late for many. However, descendants of William Cooper, like Uncle Boydie Turner, William Cooper's grandson, have continued his legacy by quite literally walking in his footsteps. Uncle Boydie actually delivered uh, a petition to Queen Elizabeth. Um, but Uncle Boydie got that. Um, he met with uh, Prince William and spoke to him about getting this petition to his grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, and he was successful, Uncle Bordy was successful in doing that in 2015. Uncle Bordy also, along with Uncle William's great-great-grandson, Kevin Russell, and other family members and supporters, they've actually recreated the march to the German consulate over the past few years. And Uncle Bordy formally handed in a letter to the German consulate with opened doors and so this legacy it lives on and his descendants carry that with pride and it also teaches us a lot about compassion and humanity. So 
So, Carly, we've already talked about how immigration for non-Europeans was restricted in the 1930s. But this closing off of borders to non-whites actually stretches way back. Take, for example, the introduction of the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901. Also known as the White Australia Policy, the Act was one of the first pieces of law brought in by the newly constituted Australian government. (laughs) That's something to be proud of, hey? Yay! Yeah, legendary. Great. This policy included the immigration dictation test. New migrants had to transcribe a 50-word paragraph, but in any language chosen by the supervising immigration officer. Sounds fair. So one group that was particularly targeted by these racist laws was the Chinese community, who had flocked to Melbourne and other parts of Australia predominantly during the gold rush period of the mid-1800s. Until it was abolished in 1958, the dictation test made it virtually impossible for any more new arrivals to migrate from China to Australia. Yeah, so Carly, you took the dictation test, right? Yeah, I did. I didn't want to miss a chance at a historical reenactment. So much fun. You. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> so Alan Kong, her day job boss at the Victorian State Archives, played the part of the immigration officer using a real-life dictation test from 1932. We're here at the Victorian Archives Centre, and I'm here with my boss, Alan, and he's about to give me the dictation test. So, Carly, I want you to write down this sentence, word for word. I'll read it out to you. OK, great. I'm ready for it. 獅子和老虎,狮子和老虎是比较瘦一点,狮子和老虎可以能够大叫,可以能够喐动整个世界。狮子和老虎可以说是表兄表弟。OK,what uh, um, language is that?It is in Cantonese. Oh, uh, so I learnt Mandarin in Year 5. Can, can I write it in that? No, unfortunately you failed. Oh. I can read it out in English for you to okay, see. OK, yeah, that'd be good. The tiger is sleeker and so life and so graceful that he does not show to the same appalling advantage as his cousin, the lion, with the roar that shakes the earth. Both are cast, cousins of our amiable purring friend of the hearth drug, but the tiger is king of the family. What? Like, that's even, in, even in English, that's really hard to say. I don't... Could they make it any harder? I know, it's a ridiculous paragraph. In, in spite of the hostilities towards them, the Australian Chinese community remained an active and resilient force in Melbourne and Australia-wide. They also fought for their rights and didn't shy away from strikes and even riots. One of the biggest riots undertaken by Chinese Australians was the cabinet makers strike in Melbourne. Situated in Lonsdale, Little Lonsdale and Exhibition Streets, the Chinese furniture makers were hard workers who specialised in producing affordable furniture for Victorian homes. However, their working conditions were dismal and their pay was pretty atrocious. They established the Chinese Workers' Union in the 1880s and staged one of their first strikes in September 1885 with 300 furniture makers striking for better working conditions and pay. The strike lasted several weeks and while it resulted in significant improvements for workers, as a consequence, a wave of anti-Chinese racism swept Melbourne. The government reacted with the Furniture Stamping Bill, which required all Chinese-built furniture to be labelled as Chinese-made. Oh, so made by a Chinese person. Mm. So I I guess today's equivalent, that's that uh, country of origin stickers that we see everywhere, made in China. Um, Yeah, and that actually, 
that reminds me of another tattoo, Lee, um, that a friend of mine has. So I think we're on a running theme here. Hmm. So a friend of mine has a tattoo made in China on his butt. Oh. Uh, I think referring to um, his parents' uh, Chinese heritage. Chinese heritage, yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do you know about that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, in all seriousness, though, the Chinese uh, furniture was renowned for its quality. Um, apparently, it was quite beautiful. So, Wow. So it was a sign of prestige. Well, the actual stamping of it wasn't, but in actual fact, the furniture oh. was. So they stamped it. And because people were racist against the Chinese, they were like, oh, I don't want anything Chinese built, even though the quality was astronomical and they won a lot of awards. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. You can see some of that furniture at the Chinese Museum. (laughs) We should go there on a visit. Make a trip to Bendigo? Yeah, there's one in the city as well. Oh, okay, that's a lot closer. Probably the most well-known strike by the Chinese cabinet makers happened in October 1903. This protest was in retaliation to the Royal Commission into the operation of factories, which saw Chinese factories limited to only 20, with a maximum of 300 workers each. According to local newspapers, the strike started off pretty tame. That is, until the employers brought in scab workers from Sydney, known as the Blacklegs, to do the job in place of the striking cabinet makers. Unionists and non-unionists alike were generally running wild. To give you a bit of an idea, listen to this description from a report in the Mount Alexander newspaper, dated the 18th November 1903. Suddenly, a Chinese blew a whistle, and then the fun or rather a mild kind of riot, began. Several men commenced running in the direction of the jail. One Chinaman threw a hammer at another, and soon the police were actively engaged in pushing, pummeling, and sometimes battening the hoarded celestials who surged around them. This kind of violence saw the end of the 12-week strike and resulted in a general increase in wages. The strikers were even given payment for expenses which they incurred whilst on strike. Okay, so a small victory there, though definitely not the end of persecution for Chinese people in Australia. But while we're on the topic of Melbourne protests, we'd be amiss if we didn't cover the 1923 police strike, a strike which saw chaos on the city streets and a brutal response from the authorities. Let's hear from our guest, Jeff Sparrow, about this incredible event that rocked sleepy post-war Melbourne. We met at his city apartment, not too far from where the police strike went down decades earlier. My name's Jeff Sparrow. I'm a broadcaster at Triple R. Um, I'm a writer, former editor of Overland magazine. Um, my sister and I worked on a couple of books called Radical Melbourne and Radical Melbourne 2. And I was, for quite some time, a bookseller in Melbourne Trades Hall, which is where I became interested in labour history in general and the Melbourne police strike in particular. We asked Jeff why nearly three quarters of the Melbourne police force decided to go on strike and what life was like for the boys in blue. The British police system was imported to Australia but Australian police in the 19th century were notoriously bad. Uh, Police constables were recruited from often from criminals. They were paid very little and they were trained very badly. It's the aftermath of the First World War. There was widespread unemployment and um, poverty in the wake of the war. And of course there's been the um, upheaval following the Russian Revolution. So that was the context in which Melbourne police began to organise against their um, conditions. It's 
very, very rare for police to strike. So the Melbourne police strike is actually quite an extraordinary event. One of the main leaders was a constable called William Brooks, and when he began to organise in um, his communication with the other police, he addressed them as comrades and fellow workers. Things began on Wednesday, October 31st, 1923, at the Russell Street Barracks. Led by Constable William Brooks, a squad of 29 policemen refused to go on duty. The strike soon kicked into full gear and by Friday, November 2nd, the protesters were joined by over 600 of the Metropolitan Constabulary. Police still loyal to the command, most of them from country stations, were called in. Derided by the strikers as scabs and blacklegs, there were serious clashes between the two. There's a fight almost immediately. Once the news of the um, dispute gets out, huge crowds come into the city to see what's happening. And you have to remember Melbourne in the 1920s is quite a dull place. Overwhelmingly, the crowds are hostile to the um, blacklegs and the scabs around the city, and there are numerous reports of people attacking them when they try to maintain um, policing duties in defiance um, of the strike. The first few nights, there's an atmosphere of carnival throughout the city. Um, people are engaged in enormous games of two-up, you know, a gambling game that's been popularised during the war in Collins Street. Um, there's an account of someone dancing on the top of a, of a tram. Um, and basically just people having a, um, having a good time. But at the, at the same time, they're expressing their hostility um, to the scabs. Meanwhile, establishment Melbourne is rallying to break the strike, and that entails recruiting um, a, special, a special constabulary force. The special constables are drawn from the traditional ranks of strike breakers, which are ex-army officers, but also private school boys, um, middle-class bank, you know, bank tellers and um, the like. And again, this is widely resented by the public. Um, there's accounts of taxi drivers refusing to carry them when they uh, establish their own cars. And again, that gives you a, a sense of their class background because for a few people had cars in the 1920s. When they established their own cars, they had to cover the number plates because they were so hated by people. Um, there's stories of waitresses in the Russell Street police um, headquarters walking out rather than serve them. You know, this, this 1920s, it's a time of um, turmoil and upheavals. The prospect of these confrontations on the streets, we don't know where it's going to end up. So you could see why people would come in, you know, to, to see it them, themselves. And um, again, there are sort of descriptions of people flooding into town to see this city that's been transformed by... By, by this dispute. So come Saturday, November 3rd, with the huge crowds gathered at the city centre, people began to loot department stores and other businesses. A total of 78 shop fronts were smashed. On Elizabeth Street, a tram was derailed and attempts were made to set it on fire. There's numerous newspaper reports about these lootings. One of our favourites begins with three Melbourne constables stopping a group of young men. The youths quickly fled. The police gave chase. Lagging behind the rest, Claude Tyranny was targeted and after briefly losing himself in the crowd, was again spotted by the police on Queen Street. Gunshots were fired into the air. Thinking he'd been hit, the 22-year-old fell back against the wall and fainted. Oh, poor guy. Oh, no. Oh. 
Back in the City Watch House, the plainclothes police asked Claude if he was in possession of any stolen clothing. Apparently, he said, only what I got on me, and then he took off all these layers of clothes, including shirts, singlets, and, last of all, a bathing costume. (laughs) (laughs) The following Wednesday, old mate Claude was sentenced to three months' jail, and he wasn't alone. John Orenko also went on to serve three months for stealing three hats and a piece of tweed. John Stephen was charged with unlawful possession of a pair of boots, and Ernest Schwerholt would face the city court for a stolen hat and a dressing gown. Conservative newspapers portrayed the thefts as work of seasoned criminals and the inevitable outcome of industrial action. But as Jeff argues, the looting was really more just ordinary working-class people taking advantage of the upheaval caused by the dispute. Certainly, the damage to businesses was widespread. There were also skirmishes involving pelting by eggs or other rubbish found on the streets. Sometimes, however, more harmful weapons were used, like broken beer bottles. At their Melbourne Town Hall headquarters, the special constables even turned the building's fire hoses on the protesting crowds to allow loyalists to pass through. Here's Jeff again. The specials are mobilised to disperse the crowds and that's when a great deal um, of the injuries take place. There are reports of hundreds of people being carried to a hospital because um, the special constables, who are by and large just ex-army officers who have been given clubs, are charging into crowds and um, cracking skulls. And, of course, there was the tradition of special constables that goes back to the great strikes of the 1890s. I'm fairly sure that they were actually using some of the same batons that had been stockpiled during the um, maritime dispute of the 1890s. So that adds to the kind of class element of, of, the, of the dispute, that you have this sort of tradition of strike-breaking. There are contemporary descriptions of it, essentially that an army had taken over Melbourne City and you know, substantial people were being held you know, in, in the basement of the town hall while people with armbands patrolled the city streets you know, with this sort of eerie calm over the city. So um, it must have been quite extraordinary times. So essentially, yeah, there's a kind of martial um, law happening in Melbourne for, um, for quite some time as the strike is gradually defeated. And the strikers really don't know what to do. They don't really have a strategy. And um, eventually the strike just goes down to defeat. In some ways, the aftermath of the strike is almost as interesting as the strike itself. The authorities eventually agreed to almost all of the strikers' demands. Over time, police pensions were instated, better training was introduced and they achieved pay parity with New South Wales. But the government was adamant that none of the strikers should get their jobs back. There were other casualties too. There were at least three people killed um, due to the strike. There was a man called James Lobley who was found dead in Swanson Street um, after being hit over the head with a metal stand by um, a sailor. Um, Someone else was killed by a car and um, someone else was... uh, A third man was killed after being confronted by three young men who had robbed him of two bottles of beers. Decades later, it's hard for us to fully comprehend the circumstances which led to the strike and to appreciate its full impact which left a mark on Melbourne for years to come. It's quite a different Melbourne than to what we're used to today, where, you know, so many people had been through this experience of war. There'd been, you know, um, mass strikes during this whole sort of period, and um, that had led to a much more violent political culture. 
While researching this episode, we found that for many people struggling to obtain better life opportunities, their capacity to negotiate harks back to the strength of their education. When we asked Kimberly, whose work makes her a modern advocate for Victorian Aboriginal culture, to reflect on her favourite photos of William Cooper and his community, she described this continuing tradition of learning. My favourite photos of my family um, would have to be, I mean, there's lots. I'm very lucky that I do have a lot of photos of my family from Kamragunja and the mission. And photos of my great-grandfather, Thomas Shadrach James, at the schoolhouse at Kamragunja with all the students. And my great-grandmother would have been in that, in that photo as well. And um, a lot of aunties and uncles and other relations from Kamragunja. But it's a really powerful photo and, and having the schoolhouse in the, in the background. To me, education, you know, is the key. And that's really what's been instilled in me uh, for a very long time. And always said is, is education is so important. And I think that comes from Uncle William. And education was key to our survival. And I think it's still key to our survival. Um, I just find that the photo of the Cumbergunja schoolhouse with Grandpa James and and all the other people at Cumbergunja there, it's, it's really powerful. The power of the pen is so important and Uncle William certainly showed us that. That's the end of our fourth episode, Melbourne on Strike. If you ask us, history makes great entertainment. But sometimes, as the legend grows, the facts get lost. With that in mind, in our next episode, we investigate a story that for decades has fired the imaginations of Melbourne ghost hunters and old-time pub goers alike. We've done our own research, and what we found out, let's just say it could be a little controversial. See you then. You can jump on our website at deadandburiedpodcast.com to explore the original evidence we use to build our stories and sign up to our mailing list for new story details. We'd love to hear your Melbourne history stories too, so drop us an email. And if you enjoyed the podcast, let everyone know with an iTunes review. Dead and Buried Podcast is supported by the City of Melbourne and brought to you by bornandbredhistoricalresearch.com.au. Get in touch and we'll help you find what you're looking for. Thank you.